0: Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of graphic violence, harm against minors, ableism, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sophie was going to bomb this place on TripAdvisor. Shiny Warwada looked nothing like the Bonsali film her mom had made her watch before they came to Pune to see the real setting of the 18th century epic. She was promised a palace of mirrors. Instead, it was mostly gray and weathered, with small windows that only let the light in on the topmost levels. The former location of the mirror palace itself was commemorated by a metal plaque that now only offered a view of a shipping container. Sophie's mom still ate it up. She was the kind of person who actually read the cards in museums. Sophie ducked out early to grab her Nintendo Switch from the car. As she headed back through the main courtyard, she saw something very strange. Sophie had already been let down by the courtyard's appearance when they arrived. In the Bonsali film, Priyanka Chopra danced through the large open areas with colored sand and diaz, singing sweetly about how her love had finally returned to her. But there was no Priyanka in this muted courtyard, only a very small boy dressed in traditional garments. She wondered if he was some kind of plant, until he burst into flames. Fire licked the white fabric as the boy's skin sizzled and melted, His mouth gaped wide as he wailed. Somehow, he was standing upright through what was clearly overwhelming pain. Sophie rushed forward to extinguish the flames, but she ran right through him, leaving only the sensation of searing heat, a feeling like running your fingertip over a candle. Confused, Sophie called for help. Her mother and the rest of the tour group rushed in. By the time they arrived, all that was left of the boy was ash on the ground. <laughs> Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to India's Shaniwar Wada, an early 18th century fortified palace built to house some of the Murata Empire's greatest warriors. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up... We'll begin our journey
1: into the historic fort. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: On the western side of the Indian subcontinent, there is a city called Pune. With an estimated population of 7 million people, it's the eighth largest population center in India. Pune is the informational technology capital of the country, known as the Oxford of the East, due to many universities and technical schools scattered throughout the city. At the near center of the city, on the bank of the Muta River, is a majestic 18th century fort called Shaniwar Wada. It was home to some of India's greatest warriors and politicians, as well as some of its most dangerous betrayals. The death and destruction tied to the fort has left behind shadows, phantom pushes and pulls, and disembodied voices crying out for help. These spirits are the last remnants of the fort's storied history, as a series of fires have ravaged the building itself. In order to understand the loss experienced by both these spirits and the culture they came from, one has to dive far back into Indian history. If South Asia can be defined by any one conflict, it's the region's ongoing religious wars between Hindus and Muslims. Long before the British and Portuguese arrived and exacerbated these problems, the countries we now know as India and Pakistan were divided into smaller kingdoms who fought for religious and cultural dominance. During most of the 18th century, the Indian subcontinent was dominated by the Mughal Empire, a Muslim state with its origins in modern-day Uzbekistan. In 1720, the head of the Murata Empire appointed a 20-year-old warrior named Bajirao Bilal to succeed his father in the role of Prime Minister, or Peshwa. Bajirao was determined to fight his way from Pune to Delhi in order to expel the Mughals and claim all of the Indian subcontinent as a Hindu state. In his 19-year career as a Peshwa, he never lost a battle. As his renown grew, so did the power of the Peshwas, eventually superseding the kings they were expected to serve in terms of power and influence. Ten years into his campaign to expand the Murata Empire, Bajirao began building a seven-story fortified palace called Shaniwarwada, or Saturday Fort, in 1730. It was completed in 1732 and would serve as the seat of the Peshwa's power until European imperial powers forced them into decline. When he wasn't in the field, Bajirao stayed with his wife Kashibai and their sons at Shaniwarwada. The gardens of the fort provided an idyllic place for children to play, and the many halls of the palace were lauded in the region for their decor. This included both intricate teak finishings and wall paintings of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. It is at this point that the historical record gets controversial. Baji Rao married Mastani, the daughter of the Rajput king Chhatrasal and his Persian Muslim concubine. It was not unheard of for both Hindu and Muslim rulers to take multiple wives. However, Mustani's ties to Islam and the lack of official approval from both Bajirao's family and Kashibai presented personal and political issues. Some claim that the marriage was a political match meant to thank Bajirao for saving the Rajput kingdom. But legend has it that Bajirao fell in love with the princess after she broke into his tent in men's clothing to ask him for military aid. The story says that Bajirao gave Mastani a dagger, perhaps not realizing that doing so was a sign of marriage in Rajput culture. Whatever the truth was, Mastani followed her new husband to Shaniwarwada, where she faced a chilly reception from her new in-laws. Bajirao's mother and brother refused to acknowledge her, and Bajirao ended up having to build a separate residence for her. Believe it or not, this period was, in many ways, the most peaceful era in Shani Warwata's domestic history. Kashi was shy, but her husband, Bajirao, told her he liked her that way. It was as though they had a secret world all their own. No one got to see the playful side of his wife but him. No one else would know her talent at weaving beautiful stories. Life was hard when he was away. Kashi would practice her dancing at her crafts. She would gossip with her sisters and help her mother-in-law. But generally, all was quiet until Bajira returned. When they reunited, he would sweep her up in hugs and kisses and send her giggling around their apartments with joy. Then he went away again. And after a while, she began to see things. Warriors bathed in blood. Headless children. Women covered in ash and screaming. They walked the halls of the Wada, wailing without sound, before disappearing again. It was unnerving, but her husband's conquests were necessarily bloody. Kashi was a practical woman. There were steps she could take to put the spirits to rest, but she would need her husband's participation. Kashi rehearsed what she would say to Bajiro, how she would sound rational and like someone who should be believed and helped. But before she could seek his assistance, he returned with another wife. Mastani was a beautiful Rajput princess and a warrior herself, if the rumors were true. But Kashi was shy. How could she compete? She let her mother in law do the talking. Her husband's family directed enough poison to Mastani to kill a cobra, while Kashi steeled herself for a difficult conversation with her husband. She told Baji Rao that she didn't mind Mastani. She was a kind girl, if almost stubbornly naive in thinking her mother in law would ever accept her. But it was the spirits, the boots, that worried her. She tried the methods provided by the priests. She invoked Lord Krishna and Ganesh. She burned turmeric and left out steel and iron and water. Ghosts were supposed to fear all of them. But the spirits didn't seem troubled. Sometimes they even appeared in the small fountains around the compound. Kashi wondered aloud if the problem was that the spirits were Muslim. Perhaps their gods were not as helpful to non-believers. Bajirao laughed at her and cupped her cheek fondly. The arrival of his warrior wife had clearly upset her more than she would admit. Kashi stamped her foot. He wasn't listening to her. If Mustani made her husband happy, she could bear it. But she couldn't bear these spirits wandering through the house. They would frighten their sons. Bajirao asked if their sons had seen the ghosts. Kashi admitted that, fortunately, they had not. Bajirao told her that they were only nightmares. He would lie down with her tonight, and they would get to the bottom of things. Kashi lay awake as Bajirao snored, waiting for the spirits to come. The child came first, teetering about, without his head. Kashi squeezed Bajirao's forearm, trying to rouse him, but he did not wake. The child settled at the foot of her bed, neck tilted slightly to the side, as if studying her with eyes that were long gone. Kashi's breathing became shallow. She tugged on Bajirao's arm again. Still, he did not wake. Then came the soldier, blood clinging to his armor and clothes, glistening crimson in the night. His armor clinked and he raised his sword. It swept out like a flexible reed, swirling in a circle until returning to rest. Kashi pushed her husband hard, but he merely rolled over. Next came a woman, her head covered, caked with black ash from head to toe. Only the whites of her eyes glinted in the darkness. Kashi begged her husband to wake. The ghosts crept closer and closer lowering their faces to hers. Kashi gasped and ran from the bed, her nightgown fluttering behind her. She stopped short when she reached the hallway, trying to take comfort in the light from the small lamps. The corridor was deserted. She took a moment to catch her breath. No need to be the Peshwa's brave wife when no one was around. But she wasn't alone for long. A woman appeared at the end of the hallway dressed in white, flowing fabric. Her long, dark hair spread over her shoulders. She was regal and unearthly. Kashi had never seen this spirit before. She hoped it was a heroic spirit or a god herself. Perhaps the mother goddess Parvati had come to save her marriage. But as the woman drew closer, Kashi's breath caught in her throat. It was Mustani. Kashi's cheeks were hot. She didn't want to show weakness around her rival. But Mustani looked as frightened as she was. Kashi asked her what was wrong. The great warrior princess's breath was quick. She stammered out the word, Ghosts. Kashi embraced her and told her that she could see them too. They held each other a long time, each knowing the great warrior could not see the dead he left behind. But they did. And in the sharing, they could find peace. There are no historical records to show what Kashi Bai thought of her husband's second wife, but she would later raise Mastani and Baji Rao's son after Mastani's death. If nothing else, it seems her perception of the new woman was more forgiving than Baji Rao's mother. Baji Rao's reign was a rousing success. But his sudden death from a fever at 39 shocked his family and kingdom. It would be an omen of things to come. Violence and early death awaited many of his descendants, and the Peshwas would fall within 100 years. His descendants would never reach his glory or his body count. Up next, the story of the Murata Peshwas gets even bloodier. Hi, it's Greg. ParCast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer—men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alistair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight, provided by practicing MD Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman or even the doctor and gang member who mix deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow medical murders free on Spotify
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by anytime fitness, forget dark alleys and cemeteries for some,
0: Wada, an 18th-century fort and palace on the western side of India, was built by one of the greatest generals the country has ever seen, Bajirao I. Though the fort was truly glorious, the violent legacy of its builder would echo along its walls as the years wore on, leaving a lasting, supernatural impression. Following Bajirao I's sudden death at 39, his son Balaji Baji Rao, also known as Nana Saheb, ruled for 21 years. During his reign, he continued to expand and enhance Shaniwar Wada, including additional gates, bastions, and other fortifications. But the golden age didn't last. Nana Saheb's oldest son was killed in battle, so rule eventually passed to the Peshwa's second son, Madhav Rao I. The new Peshwa faced war on several fronts including from his own uncle, Ragunath Rao. Ragunath Rao was under house arrest under suspicion of treason when Madhav Rao I died of tuberculosis at age 27. This left Nanasaheb's third son, Narayan Rao, to ascend the Peshwa throne. But Narayan Rao was 17 years old when his brother died. Ragunath Rao was appointed as regent until Narayan Rao came of age in the next year. Narayan Rao soon heard rumors that his uncle was planning to depose him. He placed him under house arrest as soon as he was able and the threat seemed to be contained. But the young Peishwa was mistaken. Flower petals rained from the sky. The clash of cymbals and tinkling of bells mingled with the shouts of the old and young. The smell of jasmine filled the air. Standing above it all were large sculptures of the great elephant god. It was a day of celebration. The Wada had never looked so beautiful. Intricate patterns of colored sand covered the floor. The faithful were walking on art as they celebrated Lord Ganesh. Narayan Ra was overwhelmed by the joy around him. He almost managed to forget his anxieties about being a new ruler and that he'd locked his uncle away for treason. But there was nothing to be done. If he couldn't respect the Peshwa, he would have to observe the festival on his own, from within his securely locked chambers. The king wandered through the crowd, delighting the bright eyes of the children around him. One small boy waved to him, a cousin of his. He recognized the boy from the royal hall, peeking from behind his mother's hip. The little boy was running through the throng when he should be walking, but Narayan Rao didn't blame him. There was something about running that seemed much more in the spirit of things than solemn prayers. He had never experienced the true freedom of childhood. He'd spent his life learning about military campaigns and laws rather than playing pretend. Just this once he wanted to play. So the Peshwa did what no other Peshwa would. He locked mischievous eyes with the kid. Then he began to chase him. Narayan Rao raced across the courtyard, weaving through the crowd to follow his laughing cousin. It felt like freedom. For just a moment, Narayan Rao would reclaim the childhood he never had. The crowd started to thin as the child darted through various corridors. It was no contest. No one knew the Wada better than Narayan Rao, after all. The Peshwa quickly managed to find the right shortcut to send his cousin straight towards him. He hid behind a pillar and listened for those small footsteps against the floor. When they finally approached, he jumped out of his hiding spot and scooped the kid into his arms. The child laughed, and then he stopped abruptly. Confused, Narain Rao placed him on the ground. The second the child's small feet touched the floor, he was off running again. Narain Rao meant to chase him, but he felt a hand on his shoulder. He spun around, clutching the hilt of his sword instinctively. But he wasn't the only one armed. A group of Rajasthani soldiers surrounded him, blades raised. Doraen Rao's mind whirled as he tried to think of what offense he could have given the Rajasthani rulers to send their warriors to his palace. They were meant to be allies. His thoughts are interrupted as one of the men finally spoke. He said one word, it was a name. One that Narayan Rao had known since he was small, when their family tie only meant a bond of friendship and duty. The name of his uncle, Ragunath Rao. One of the blades sliced a gash into his cheek. He thought back to his uncle's lessons. So each choice should be made with as much deliberation as possible. Narayan Rao hadn't listened. He had acted quickly, but rashly. He'd let his uncle get words to his allies. Now he was surrounded by assassins. He did not cry out. Rulers only yelled in battle. He closed his eyes, taking a deep breath, centering himself. The guards repeated his uncle's name in unison, chanting almost like an incantation. Narayan Rao felt the prick of their blades pressed into his skin, a cruel necklace of metal keeping him from moving. Narayan Rao considered calling for his guards, But the festivities were too loud. The crash of the cymbals and the noise of the crowd would drown out any hope of rescue. There was one more option, though Narayan Rao didn't want to take it. He would appear weak. It was better to die at the end of the blade than be marked as a coward for the rest of your life. He was only 18. These walls had been his only home. He'd barely had the chance to travel across Maharashtra or continue his grandfather's fight to Delhi, He hadn't even figured out how he would leave his mark on his people. He didn't want to surrender to his uncle. Such weakness, once displayed, was never truly hidden again. Was it worth living if he couldn't be Peishwa? Perhaps he really was just a boy, like his uncle always said. He hadn't truly lived yet. How could he make such a decision? Defeat tasted like hot blood and vial in his mouth. Narayan Rao swallowed. He shut his eyes and told the soldiers he could free Ragunath Rao this instant. He heard the rattling of chains. Had his plea worked? Perhaps the soldiers had moved ahead to begin to lift the chains that bound his uncle's door. Narayan Rao promised that he would free Ragunath Rao and his family just as soon as they put away their swords. One of the soldiers laughed. Narayan Rao refused to acknowledge it. Ragunath Rao was family. He would forgive Rao for acting so foolishly. He could be reasonable. He'd put aside his aspirations to power in order to repel invaders before. The chains rattled again. His calls were being answered. The blades bit ever so slightly into his skin. In between ragged breaths, Rao told them to wait. Ragunithrao was coming. They said they didn't hear anything. Nothing could save Narayan Rao now. They had been told to kill him. ragunath Rao's orders. But that didn't make sense. Such overt violence had never been part of the power struggle in Shani Warwada. They were descended from the great Baji Rao. They fought with honor. The soldiers did not care. Ross screamed for his uncle as the blades pierced his skin, blood flowing down his neck and chest. The rush of pain that flooded his system forced him onto his knees. The swords bent slightly, but they did not give. Ross swore he saw Ragunithrau through his haze of tears. His former regent was strolling up to him, chains broken as if by magic. Ross screamed for the guards to stop. Ragunithrau was here. He was here. He would tell them it was a mistake. Two guards turned, but they didn't see anyone. Dariyan Rao pointed with one shaking finger. He begged for them to acknowledge Ragunath Rao's presence. The man was free of his chains. This could all end now. But as the man in regal dress strolled towards him, Dariyan Rao realized he had been mistaken. His uncle had never been that tall or well-built. He wore the armor of Bajirao, but never filled it. No one could. Their ancestor cast a shadow of greatness over the fort he built. There was no mistaking this. This was Bajirao. The great general, the great ruler, returned from the grave to witness Narayan Rao's shame. The guards did not acknowledge his presence. Somehow, this was worse than his death either dying before his greatest hero or realizing that the vision before him was a lie. Both suggested he was too weak to serve as Peshwa. The soldiers lowered their blades from his neck to his chest. Narayan tried to plead his case one more time. His words were drowned out by the cold, ruthless bite of metal as the sword slid through his chest. Rao’s gaze never wavered. As his grandson bled out onto the floor, he turned on his heel and walked away. During the Ganesh Festival of 1773, a group of guards loyal to Ragunath Rao made their way into Shaniwarwada. Warwata. Legends surrounding the incident say that Ragunath Rao sent them a message to hold Narayan Rao to prevent him from escaping. The story says that Raghunath Rao's wife, Anandi Bai, who was also imprisoned with him, intercepted the message and changed the word hold to kill. This was easy, as the difference between hold and kill in Devanagari, the script used to write in Marathi, is only one letter. When the young Peshwa realized the danger, he ran for Raghunath Rao's residence within the palace, calling Kakamala Vatsva or Uncle Save Me. We will never know if Ragunath Rao did not hear his nephew or if he simply did not care. To this day, visitors at Shani Warwada report that they can hear the 18-year-old Peishwa begging his family for help, his screams carrying through the halls on the wind. Coming up, we'll discover that there is more than one way to die In Shaniwarwada. Now back to the story. One of the most notable deaths in the halls of Shaniwarwada was Narayan Rao, the third grandson of Maji Rao I. He was killed by his uncle Ragunath Rao's hired men on August 30, 1773, in an attempted coup. Narayan Ra's assassins carried him through one of Shaniwar Wada's five gates, or Darwaja, and cremated him by the Mulamuta River in the dead of night. The south gate the assassins used was once called Jambul Darwaja and was used by the Wada's concubines. After the Peshwas' murder, it became known as Narayan's Gate. The potential succession of the Peshwas was in crisis. Narayan Ra's murderous uncle was technically the next in line, but the late Peshwa's wife, Gangabai, was pregnant, providing a potential heir that would block his claim. Her supporters spirited her away from court to keep her safe from reprisal. She gave birth to her and Narayan Rao's son, Sawai Matafrau, on April 18, 1774. A group of Narayan Rao's advisors formed a council to protect the Peshwa's interests while waiting for Sawai to come of age. This council was headed by Nana Fadnavis, a master politician who was called the Murata Machiavelli by the invading Europeans. And invade they did. The encroachment of the East India Trading Company into Murata territory ignited several wars and the Peshwa's power remained at risk for almost all of Sawai's childhood. He would come of age in an era of crisis. It would be his job to decide when and how his people would resist British influence. At least, it should have been. Sawai Madhav Rao never knew his father. He had heard the name Narayan Rao many times, but the man remained a mystery to him. His father had been murdered before he was born. His birth was inauspicious. It was supposed to be a time for fanfare trumpets and processionals on elephants, but his mother had screamed in pain and anguish and kept screaming long after he'd left her. Sawai had grown up afraid of his regent, Nana fadnavis Nana was a shrewd leader, but his smile was too large, a tiger waiting in the jungle. The rest of the council reassured Sawai that Nana only meant harm to their enemies, to repel the Europeans and capture Delhi, but Sawai didn't believe them. His father had been killed at the hands of the man who led for him. There was nothing to stop Nana from killing Sawai to hold on to his power. Sawai knew this somehow, even before he learned how to read. At night, he could hear the sounds of the cannons and the screams for vengeance. Occasionally, he heard the cries of his father. Sawai wanted revenge. He wanted to fight the assassins that had taken his father from him. Surely, Narayan Rao would have been a good father to him. He wouldn't have feared him the way he feared Nana. But Nana had surprised Sawai. He let Sawai take his place as Peshwa with little complaint. He merely asked to stay on as a trusted advisor, which Sawai could not refuse. Though Nana could pressure him, Sawai was the real descendant of Bajirao. The people would rise up if anyone heard him. From the day of his ascension onward, Soai was plagued by nightmares. Swords clashed and chains rattled in his dreams. why would wake in a sweat, certain that blades were at his neck. But on the night of his 19th birthday, the dreams of fear and helplessness burned away. A golden presence filled the darkest edges of his mind. His fear was gone and he had a new purpose. Nana had wanted to change the Murata landscape through connections with the British, but Sawai was not interested in making ties with a country across the water. His focus was on Delhi, on bringing his father and grandfather's dream to life. Sometimes he swore he could feel them beside him, telling him to create the greatest Hindu state the world had ever seen. But there were rumblings of unrest in the Wada, whispers behind his back. People did not share Sawai's vision. They faced enough war from the invaders. Why did the young Peshwa need to seek it out? Truthfully, so I could not fully explain why he was compelled to this cause. It went beyond wanting to prove himself to his father. It was as if there was another force working alongside him, encouraging him down his path. He could feel their presence next to him as he walked the perimeter of the Wada. The gardens were in full bloom. Water rippled through the lotus fountain at the very center. It was the only blessing that had carried over from Sawai's birth. It was built in his honor, and he loved to look at it. He felt a gentle hand on his shoulder as he got lost in the movement of the water. Sawai reached up to catch it, but he only felt air. He had never known his father. He didn't know how tall he was or the weight of his grip. But somehow, he knew that his father was here that they were one and the same. A guard called Sawai's name, and the intangible weight vanished. His momentary peace was no more. There was always so much work to do to keep things running. Sometimes he wished for a simpler life, one where his father was still alive. A voice in his head told him that his father could come back. Sawai stopped walking. He couldn't feel his father's presence anymore, But the voice was still there telling him that a little sacrifice would be all it took to restore things he could hear the fountain as though he were right next to it the repetitive sound of the water was so soothing he wanted to wash himself in it and take refuge from the hot summer day if he climbed in the water he could wash everything away perhaps even his own existence so i paused that wasn't a thought he normally had The voice agreed with him. It wasn't like Sawai at all, but if Sawai wanted his father to return, he would have to step into the water and let the gods decide what came next. His path was clear. He told his retinue that he would like to bathe in the fountain and headed up the steps to the ramparts. The guards approached, puzzled and concerned. Sawai paid them no mind. They were confused. The fountain was in another garden at his father's gate, one of the guards who knew him from when he was small, called out to him. Sawai unsheathed his sword and held it up to the man's chest. He reminded the guard that it was not his job to question the decisions of the peishwa. The guard agreed, but still tried to protest. Sawai struck him with the pommel, sending the man stumbling back. Sawai would not be stopped by his own guards. You could never trust a hired man anyway. Hired men had killed his father. So I climbed higher and higher. He didn't remember the garden being so far removed. The air here smelled more of brick dust than flowers, but he could see the bubbling fountain floating above him. What a pleasant thing to build a garden in the air. His father must have loved him very much to give him such a gift. So I climbed until his legs ached. He was so close now. A soft breeze blew the hair from his face. He felt serene. The fountain was almost within reach. The world would begin anew as he bathed. He felt his father step up to meet him. Sawai did not dare turn his head in case the sudden movement scared his ancestor away. He could feel the man, even if he couldn't see him. They stood together on the Wada's walls, taking in the silence. Derainwa whispered that he was ready to take over for Sawai he would protect him from the nightmares as he had in the past. He only needed to bathe in the waters. It would all wash away. So why nodded. He was ready. He could not manage this without his father's help. Nana was too good at convincing the others that the British would take care of them. So why and his father knew better. Water splashed in the fountain. It looked so inviting ready for Sawai to cleanse himself and come away with a sense of renewed purpose. Sawai removed his shoes. The world shifted around him. He was no longer in the garden. He was standing on top of the water. The land stretched out for miles in front of him. Several guards below cautioned Sawai to turn back around. Sawai shook his head. The fountain returned, only a few steps out of reach now. He felt the pressure of his father's hands against his shoulder. So I apologized for taking his time. He took one step and felt the scrape of brick under his feet. He looked down to see grass. Which version was real? Zawai so took another step. The fountain was so close he could taste the water against his tongue. He stepped again. But it wasn't water that greeted him. It was air. He was falling from the safety of the water. He felt the wind rushing around him. People were screaming. Time seemed to stand still. The shrinking figure of Narain Rao smiled up at him from the top of the water. So why hit the ground. The last thing he saw were the spikes on the front gate. Sawai Madhav Rao died by suicide in 1795 at the age of 21. His ghost has been reported to appear on the Wada's ramparts, just above his father's gate, where he fell to his tragic death. But there's another, sadder legend tied to the young Peshwa that Sawai tried to drown himself in the building's most opulent fountain, a fountain built to entertain him when he was a toddler. Sawai's mental health history is lost to time. Rumors swirled that he was hoping to defy his advisor, Nana Fadnavis, just before his death. But his true mindset is a mystery that will likely never be solved. We do know that Sawai was succeeded by the son of his great-uncle Rao, who styled himself as Bhaji Ra II. The second Bhaji Ra wasn't nearly as popular as the first, thanks to the rumors of his parents' role in the Peshwa assassinations. He would eventually be deposed only regaining his office by signing a treaty with the British in 1802. The glorious reign of the Peshwas had begun with the Bajirao, and would end with one as well. The entire Murata Empire surrendered to the British by 1818. Wada itself was racked by a series of fires beginning in 1791, wearing away at the fort's most impressive architectural features bit by bit. In 1828, an unexplained fire burned the entirety of the fort's living and reception spaces to the ground. The inferno was reported to have burned for a whole week before the damage could be controlled. Time and colonial neglect did their worst. Ash and scorch marks are still visible on the water's walls. Docents claim that the disembodied running footsteps and dark silhouettes are the remains of the fire's many victims The 2015 release of a big-budget Bollywood retelling of the love story of Bajirao and Mastani has created renewed interest in Warwata. Tourists finally appear to be returning to the storied site, even if its greatest architectural marvels are long gone. But when a structure is built for war, what remains when its original builders pass on? Is there anything beyond the screams in the night and the dancing shadows? The local government set up a light and sound show to play from the massive fort to bring some life to the darkness. But light casts shadows. And at the Shani Warwada, it's always best to pay close attention and count every single one. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legend series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free. From your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new podcast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead, use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.